Show me the money. This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanica. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be a Better Investor podcast. It is the podcast where I pick the brains of the top professional investors in the country and we try to understand how they approach investments, what information they use in their investment process. We talk about their best and worst investments because even professional investors sometimes get it wrong and hopefully their insights will offer a few nuggets of wisdom to assist normal amateur investors to improve their investment decisions. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Ditburner. He's, of course, the Chief Investment Officer at Old Mutual Private Client Securities. He has been in this hot seat since 2017. And before joining Old Mutual, he was uh, a portfolio manager at Citadel and the Chief Investment Officer at Canon Asset Managers. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Let's start. When did you buy your very, very first share and, and what was it? <laughs> Off Nindrake call. Jeez, that's a, that's a fantastic question. <laughs> and I'll have to go back a very long way, but it would have been uh, during varsity days. I think it was Wilson Bailey Homes. Well, not WBHO, Wilson Bailey Homes, Avcon. For no other reason other than uh, my father worked there. So I was obviously familiar with the business. I only, you know, really started earning money uh, when I was at varsity doing a bit of lecturing and whatnot. So that was really the first time that I uh, had the opportunity, I suppose, to to buy shares. And then obviously, you know, that was with the onset, I suppose, of kind of online trading accounts when they probably just came into being. Before that, you needed a stockbroker, I think was, you know, the the term that used to be used. So yeah, so I bought a share that a company I was obviously just familiar with, given that it was part of my life as my dad worked there. If I remember correctly, my very first share I bought was Nasper, just after it listed. And the only reason was because I was delivering newspapers for them every morning at five <laughs> o'clock. And as you well, say, I, <laughs> I didn't keep them. That's <laughs> the thing. It was I bought it at 18 Rand. But yeah, let's leave that. Many people actually only buy shares because they are familiar with the company. They know the company. They use their products and not really on sound fundamental investment principles. Do you see this often? Yes, I think particularly if you're trying to get started in, in investing. So, um, you know, actually, my nephew at the moment, he's, he's in um, high school and he's very keen to, you know, get into the investing game, starting to understand it, uh, you know, starting to research companies. And I actually sat down with him last year and we opened an online account for him. And I said to him, you know, start with shares that you know. You know, and, and the beauty today is that you can invest in companies. We're not just, you know, 20 years ago, we were restricted, if, you know, when, when it came to online trading to only invest in shares in South Africa, whereas today you can invest in any share literally around the world, you know, from your computer. I said to him exactly that. I said, you know, just pick the shares or companies that, you know, you can relate to, you know, so if you like your Nike sneakers or you're on social media, you know, not that that panned out that well at the beginning of this year, but, uh, you know, any company that you relate to, you know, and then at least you're interested in it, you'll follow it. And obviously, if you like the product, I suppose, you know, from the investment case, that gives it, uh, I suppose, one good tick. Uh, it's a Peter Lynch, you know, in, investing style. It's, you know, if you like the products, then it's probably a good company. 
Of course, many asset managers do not follow that approach. You have a very, very sophisticated process and system where you base a lot of the decisions on data and information. Tell us exactly, what what is your current process and and how do you now evaluate shares and their investability? How much time do we have? You know, I think the the one thing, look, at um, Old Mutual Wealth Private Client Securities, we're not an asset manager, you know, so we're not building unit trusts that have 30, 40 shares in it with very long tails of, you know, small holdings. We're a private client's business. So we we build fairly concentrated portfolios. Um, So typically, you know, only holding 20 shares at a max 25 shares. Our starting point is that, A, we've got to realize we're not economists. Are they local Um, shares or international? We've got local portfolios and and global portfolios. So both local equity, local balanced, global equity, global balanced. But that 25, uh, are they spread across? So when you say spread across, being spread across. Geographies. Yes. So on the global equity side, typically developed market focused. So US, Europe, Japan typically. But obviously, you know, we, we take the approach of buying businesses that very often have their growth coming from emerging markets. You know, so if you think about, I really used the, the example of Nike. For instance, you know, huge growth coming out of out of Asia uh, for that business. You know, so we take the approach of we want to identify 20 to 25 high quality businesses. We recognize we're not economists. We're not trying to guess what's inflation going to do or what are the interest rates going to do through the course of this year. Uh, rather, we want to buy businesses that can withstand, you know, different economic environments and that can perform, you know, in both high inflation environments, low inflation environments, etc. You know, the second point is that we've also got to, you know, link to that, I suppose, is be humble and knowing that we actually don't know what's going to happen. You know, if you look back, I suppose, if you just think about what happened, you know, last year, you know, there was a huge amount of chaos in the markets that, you know, no one could have foreseen. You know, whether it was the Chinese regulatory issues, you can't forget the evergreen uh, ship that blocked the Suez Canal, mm-hmm. we had the Wall Street bets, you know, saga at the beginning of the year, and then obviously different variants. You know, markets are always going to be up and down. Today, we've got, you know, the Ukraine-Russia geopolitical event. You know, so you've got to, you know, understand that, you know, there's going to be a lot of noise in the markets throughout the year, as there was last year. And there will be a lot of up and down and volatility as a result of that. But a very simple approach, identify good businesses. And by good businesses, we can get into exactly what a good business is. But, you know, don't overpay for it. Make sure we diversified so we can withstand, you know, different times of volatility. And then probably the most important ingredient is uh, to be patient. If we look at our portfolio at the moment, you know, we turn over probably, I think last year was just over 10% of the portfolio. So in other words, we sold and bought, you know, about 10% of the, you know, of the value of the portfolio over the year. You know, and that translates into a 10-year holding period. So we try and, you know, really buy good businesses that we can hold for a long time and, you know, see them through the cycle and, and see the price uh, appreciate. You've referred to good companies or good businesses. Can you maybe just uh, spend some time on exactly how you go about identifying those? Yeah, sure. We'll probably look at a, f- at a few qualitative overlays you know first you need you know decent management teams so you need a management team that's got a good track record of capital allocation you know not doing bad acquisitions you know not overpaying for acquisitions you know typically the acquisitions when management are allocating capital towards acquisitions you know we like them to be you know small we like them you know to not overpay for them we typically like them to 
to pay cash and not have to raise a huge amount of debt. And then we also like them to be more or less in line with, you know, what the business does, not, you know, not too far outside of, you know, their, their core business, you know. So that is a so, quite a subjective uh, approach. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you can't go and push a button on Bloomberg and get that answer. You've got to go and see, you know, who the management team is. Typically, it starts with the CEO, see how long he's been at the business or where he was before and, you know, what his uh, track record looks like. We then want to obviously look at the balance sheet. We want to make sure that the company is not too indebted. We're not scared of debt. You know, certain certain businesses actually, you know, do need debt. Um, if you think of, you know, asset-heavy businesses, you know, they do require debt to fund their assets, etc. So we're not, we're not looking for companies that don't have any debt, but we don't want them to be indebted. You know, we need to pay attention, you know, to the interest cover, uh, you know, whether they're able to service and pay down the debt over time. But we pay specific attention there to make sure the balance sheet's strong. We then look at cash flows to make sure that they're actually earning uh, real revenue and real earnings, not uh, accounting or, you know, accrual revenue that may or may not materialize at some point down the line. And then we obviously want to look at profitability. You know, so companies that are highly profitable, you know, that can turn their revenue into cash, you know, will, will tick the box for us. And I suppose the last thing is, you know, and again, probably a more, I'll say the last thing, there's, there's a lot of other things, but that's on the top of my mind right now is it's, it's not, uh, you know, quantitative, it's also subjective, I suppose, to a certain extent. But there's a lot of, you know, value uh, placed on intangible assets at the moment. I mean, you think of intangible assets, you know, like the brand value of a business, you know. So a company like Disney, for instance, that has just reported, you know, that's, uh, that's a business that comes with a huge amount of brand Value. And when we think of, you know, old school value type, value versus growth type investing, and you think of, you know, go back to Benjamin Graham days, you know, the way of valuing a business then and looking for low, you know, multiples and, you know, how you subscribe value to a business today, I think is very different because there's a huge amount of intangible assets. I'll just touch on uh, the brand. You know, there's network effects. If you think about a visa, for instance, you know, the huge network effects that that business has, obviously a network effect being, you know, the more users it has, the more valuable that business becomes. You know, the social media companies, Facebook are obviously a good example of that as well. Not that we invested in Facebook or meta platforms as it's called now, but, you know, just thinking about different types of intangible value that we can subscribe to to businesses. Can you maybe highlight a few of the shares or companies you're holding in the portfolios uh, which you believe could go places? Okay. So, you know, we've got a couple of businesses that probably fly beneath the radar, not very well-known businesses that I like to talk to. Uh, Zootis is one. It's actually, it did spectacularly well last year and it's, it's come under a bit of pressure this year. Which is absolutely fine. As I say, you, you've, you've got to take the the downs with the apps. But Zootis is effectively, you know, it's the biggest healthcare provider for animals, you know, both livestock and pet uh, animals in, in the world. You know, so they produce medication, you know, vaccines, uh, food additives. They do precision livestock farming, etc. And the beauty about Zootis, you know, besides the fact that it's the leader in this market is, you know, it's effectively a pharmaceutical business for animals. Now, there's a couple of trends, you know, that are, are taking place at the moment. When you think about, you know, how people are having less kids, spending more time at home, and we've seen, you know, the number of households who own pets increase, the trends moving higher and higher every single year. So it's got that nice tailwind behind it uh, from an industry perspective. Is that a Similarly, U.S. company? 
It's a U.S. listed business, yes, okay. but it operates. Yeah, I mean, it's mm. literally present in in I think 160 odd, odd countries around the world. I think there's maybe 200 countries in the world, so it's present in most countries. And then also you've got a rising middle class who's you know consuming more protein and and wanting high quality protein, and that talks to the livestock side of the business. The the thing we really like about this business is that unlike pharmaceutical companies that have patent lifts, these businesses in the animal healthcare space don't. You know, so if you think about a pharmaceutical business, they spend a lot of money on R&D, you know, researching new drugs, medications, etc. They get the patent awarded for X amount of years. And then at the end of that uh, patent period, you know, it falls off the cliff and then the generics come out and you've got huge competition. These guys don't face that. So once they've got a, you know, a blockbuster drug in place, it's there forever effectively. So they don't have to spend as much on R&D as your pharmaceutical businesses do, although they do still spend quite a bit, but it's closer to 10% rather than I think about 20% for pharmaceutical companies, 20% of revenue. I think that puts them in good stead. And also then your younger companies, up and coming companies, you know, have to compete and have to spend a huge amount, you know, so it makes it fairly difficult for them to compete, you know, on an ongoing basis. And then also their clientele, you know, they're selling to you and I. They're not selling to big corporations, you know, So and that gives them pricing power. You know, the client doesn't have negotiating yeah. power coming the other way. So that's a fantastic business that you're probably, you know, fairly unfamiliar with. It doesn't grab the headlines like many of the other larger tech-type companies, uh, but one that we really like. Which shares do you like on the JSE currently? On the JSE, we've taken a bit of a... At the moment, a bit of a barbell approach to it. I think there's some fantastic businesses, you know, listed on the JSC that operate both, you know, in South Africa as, as they've become to know and be called SA Inc. shares. So we really like a number of those two that that stand out that everyone will be familiar with. Uh, Shoprite, Mr. Price, are two of the retailers that we really like at the moment. We like the banks, so we've got what we think are the higher quality banks in in the form of first rand. And Standard Bank, you know, we think the banks, you know, they still trade significantly below, you know, the valuations that they were on pre-COVID. And we think in, in the fullness of time, they're going to get back there. So we do like a lot of SA Inc. shares. But then, as I say, these are what we think are your higher quality uh, type SA Inc. companies. And then on the other side, we've got, you know, your offshore, you can call them Rand Hedge type companies that we believe are generating, you know, high quality earnings abroad. Familiar names would be the likes of Richmond. You mentioned NASPERS earlier, but its process mm. obviously came under a bit of pressure. We just added a bit more there because we think, you know, that the China story looks a lot more compelling this year. You've got, you know, valuations looking much better. The regulator taking his foot off the gas. Their the economy is, you know, easing from a monetary policy perspective whilst the rest of the world is tightening. You know, and activity levels in China at the moment are low. So, you know, the probability of, of a surprise to the upside, I think, is, is far better. Mm-hmm. And Bitcorp 91 um, are, you know, smaller uh, companies that have uh, globally diversified revenue streams, which we think is really attractive. And then we've also got some of the, a few mining companies, although we fairly underweight mining or resource companies at the moment. Just given what's happened in China, I think particularly we've actually just recently sold down BHP Billiton a bit, obviously hugely exposed to, to iron ore. And we know what the outlook, you know, the Chinese economy, I suppose, is slowing down a bit. So whilst we like the China offshore equity story, 
as, as I mentioned in process, NASP was all Tencent. You know, the exposure to the direct economy through resources, we've just mm-hmm. lightened a bit at the moment. Yeah, so it's a big focus on blue chip companies. Let's talk about retail investors. What do you think are the biggest mistakes retail investors make? I think the one that jumps immediately uh, to the top of my mind is, you know, the momentum trend following. You know, people love to talk about businesses, um, you know, that are doing well and buying businesses that are doing well. And and we know the momentum story. You know, momentum, uh, there's a million academic articles on this that talk to, you know, if a company does well, continues to do well, and companies that do poorly continue to do poorly. You know, but I think from a patient's perspective, fear and greed, as we always talk about, you know, when companies fall 20, 30, 40%, you know, it's, it's very easy to think, well, it's going to zero and you want to get out. And ultimately what happens is you typically get out at exactly at exactly the wrong time. And, you know, I'm guilty of this in the, in the past and I'm sure I'll be guilty of this in the future as well, that you get it wrong. You know, you do think that there's something materially wrong with the business and you get out and then actually the business turns around and, and recovers. So I think it's important when you're holding a share that is going only in, in one direction and that's down, you know, just I think take a step back reassess you know is it a company specific problem or is it a you know general industry-wide problem or is it a market problem you know markets you know valuation perspective you know too highly valued you know as i say we're not a unit trust so we can't it's, it's not that easy to you know buy and sell without tax implications you know so when companies we we fully appreciate that at times companies are going to get overvalued and we might take some weight off but if we still like the business you know we'll be willing to stick it out understanding that it's going to come down to a, probably a fairer value and at that point we can maybe add some more but yeah i think that's probably the biggest mistake yeah. you know getting caught up in your emotions kumba and sasol come to mind because they had significant declines a few years ago, Kumba before Sassel, and I know many people got out and, uh, yeah. you know, they both rebounded very, very strongly. I suppose the difficulty, look, Sassel had a number of issues going against it. You know, thankfully, we didn't hold Sassel, uh, so I didn't have that headache mm-hmm. on my hands. And that's purely because of, you know, there's, I think, there was a Lake Charles issue mm-hmm. um, that we didn't like. So we had actually sold Sassel a few years before that. But then you get the example of Steinhoff, Eric, and, you know, people panic. Well, if you're going to panic, you need to be the first to panic. And and that's the Steinhoff story. You know, at 20 rand, when that news broke, Steinhoff very quickly went from, I think, it was 60 or 50 rand down to 20 rand when it opened that next morning. You know, I remember at the time people saying, oh, you can't sell at 20 rand. You know, it was just 60 rand yesterday. But, you know, we subsequently know, I think it went down to below one rand. At some point, yes, it has recovered a bit now, but, you know, that's the opposite of the Sassel Kumba story. You know, that's why it's important to assess at, at a company level as well. You know, it's obviously probably more art than science and the benefit of hindsight's easy. And you luck. Try and, understand what's, <laughs> yeah, and with luck, exactly. But you've got to try and understand what's happening in the business and is this, you know, a permanent destruction of capital in the case of Steinhoff or is this fixable and have investors just panicked and this has just got ridiculously cheap. And just lastly, what was your best investment ever and what was your biggest miss? I can tell you what my biggest mistake was off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> That's one that uh, sits very clear in my mind. And it was actually not buying something, but selling something. And I sold Amazon probably, I'm going to say, five, six years ago. 
you know, that was undoubtedly my biggest mistake, you know, not understanding, you know, at the time, Amazon Web Services was, was a bit of a pipe dream, you know, not understanding exactly the, uh, you know, where that business was going. You know, exiting Amazon, I can't even remember the price, but uh, it was ridiculously cheap when, when, you, when you see what it is today. You know, that was a... Uh, the biggest mistake that just jumps to mind. It's it's difficult to pinpoint, you know, what was my best investment. We've had a number of, you know, fantastic investments over time. Even, you know, I've been with a private client securities now for five years. And I think of, you know, a number of the companies that sit in, in our global equity portfolio. You know, there's many. Visa is one that jumps to mind. You know, it's just been a fantastic success. I spoke about Zootis earlier, although it's fairly new in the portfolio, you know, again, done incredibly well it's, as i said it's pulled back quite strongly this year you know but it's difficult to put a finger on you know one share that i'd say was my ultimate best uh, best investment andrew thanks so much for your time and insights that was dr andrew didburner he's of course the chief investment officer of old mutual private client securities show me the money <laughs> that was the money web be a better investor podcast with rake for kneecap Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.